0: What is the difference between a big sin and a little sin in God's eyes? Well, it may surprise you to discover that there is none. Sin is sin. Any sin makes a man into a sinner and cuts him off from a holy God. obviously, different sins affect us differently. Who wouldn't rather be lied about than shot? But as far as the person who commits the sin and his relationship with God is concerned, lying is just as deadly as murder. The same Ten Commandments that state, Thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery, also say, Thou shalt not bear A false witness, thou shalt not covet. So from God's perspective, coveting and lying are just as bad as adultery and murder. And as James 2.10 makes clear, breaking one law makes us as guilty before God as if we had broken them all. One sin, one sin, cuts us off from God and condemns us Just as assuredly as would a thousand sins. And believe it or not, that's a good thing. Because it puts us all in the same boat. We can't look down our noses at anyone and say, you're a worse sinner than I. Or, I'm a better sinner than you. A sinner is anyone who sins. And we've all sinned. So we are all sinners. We're in the same boat in need of grace. That means there's no point in trying to distinguish between big and little sins. There's no point in categorizing sins as to their relative sinfulness. But having said that, there is one special classification of sin that must be recognized. And that is the category of willful sin. And our passage for study from Hebrews brings up this matter of willful sin and has some pretty frightening things to say about it. Let's see what it says. We're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Maybe we better find out just what this willful sin is. And the most obvious thing we can say about willful sin is that it's not A sin of ignorance. It's a sin that can come only after receiving the knowledge of truth. So if you don't know any better, you cannot commit a willful sin. Now, that doesn't mean that sins of ignorance or unintentional sins are not sins or that they're overlooked The old legal adage, ignorance of the law is no excuse, holds true in the area of sin. Sins of ignorance and unintentional sin defiles us and cuts us off from God, just as do any other sins. Fortunately, however, God has always made provision for dealing mercifully with sins of ignorance. And for errors and failures. In fact, the Old Testament system of sacrifices was ordained for just that purpose. In Numbers 15, verses 22 through 29, we read these words. But when you unwittingly fail... And do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its libation, according to the ordinance, and one male goat for a sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, for it was an error. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation, of the sons of Israel, will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them. For it happened to all the people through error. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. The sacrificial system was ordained as a means of expressing sorrow over sins of ignorance, or errors in judgment, or failures that came from weakness. It was never intended as a way to pay for intentional sins. The sacrificial system was never intended to give anyone the impression that if they wanted to do something God said they couldn't do, all they had to do was go to a priest, kill a cow, and everything would be all right. Numbers 15, 30 through 31 should have made that perfectly clear. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. There was no sacrifice. No path to forgiveness for a defiant, willful sin. The author of Hebrews affirms that when he writes in 1028, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, two or three witnesses were required before someone could be found guilty of a capital offense. And that served as a safeguard to prevent the execution ...of falsely accused persons. But it also served to make clear the consequences of setting aside the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 17:6 through 7 we read, "...on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now this harsh judgment not only spoke to the seriousness of defiant sin, it was also intended to serve as a deterrent. Verses 12 and 13 continue. And the man who acts presumptuously, by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. There was no mercy for presumptuous, intentional, willful sin in the old covenant. And it may surprise you to discover that there is none in the new covenant either. Hebrews 10:26 through 27 makes that clear. Reading to Christians. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, this is tempered somewhat By understanding that the verb used here indicates this is a continual action. If we go on sinning willfully. If we continue to sin willfully. If willful sin becomes the pattern of our life. Then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. One willful, rebellious act doesn't necessarily cut a man off from all hope of forgiveness. You know, King David knew it was wrong to commit adultery with Bathsheba and to arrange for the death of Uriah. Obviously, the sins he committed were willful, but when he was confronted By his sin, by the prophet Nathan, he grieved over what he had done, and he pleaded with God for cleansing, and God granted it. So the willful sin that cuts a man off from God without hope is more than a momentary sin of passion. It has to be a defiant, calculated sin That proceeds on the assumption that God won't do what he says he'll do. Or that comes from thinking, I don't care what God says. This is what I'm going to do. You know, if David had responded to Nathan by saying, I don't care what God says. I'm king. Then I'll do as I please. Or don't tell me to repent. God will forgive me no matter what I do, and then continued doing what he wanted to do in spite of what God and his prophets said, he would have no doubt been cut off from God without hope. Now, I'm not sure what the situation would have been had Nathan gotten to David just before he committed a sin with Bathsheba. If Nathan had gotten to him in time to remind David of God's law and warned him not to do it. You know, if at that point David had said, I don't want to hear about it, come back after it's over and then I'll think about repenting. Or God loves me. I can do whatever I want. Even things I know he says I shouldn't do. If he had said that, things may have turned out differently. You know, that kind of presumptuous sin would have been indicative of a hardening heart that would have most likely continued to act in rebellion against God and his word. And would therefore have been the kind of sin our author is talking about. quite frankly, that is why it worries me so. When Christians say, I know what I'm planning to do is wrong, but I know God will forgive me. So I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I've heard that in counseling more times than I want to admit. There's an assumption among Christians that they can do whatever they want, and God will forgive them. Now, the promise of forgiveness was never intended as a license to sin and thinking so may very well lead to a life of continuing presumptuous sin, the willful sin we're being warned about here. The worst kind of sin there is, especially for a Christian. And our author tells us why. He gives three reasons willful sin is so bad beginning with the fact that it tramples underfoot the Son of God. For the Christian, willful sin is nothing less than a complete repudiation of the Lordship of Christ. It's saying, I know what you want me to do, but I refuse to do it. I may have confessed you as the Son of God, but I refuse to let you be Lord of my life. I'm still going to do what I want to do in spite of who you are, what you've said, and what you've done for me. That's not only a failure to show proper respect for the Son of God. That is showing utter contempt For him, it's walking all over him, ignoring him and disregarding the claim he has on your life. You may not have thought it through. But contempt for Christ is what you are demonstrating if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. In addition to that, to do so is to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which we have been sanctified. Now, the author makes it very clear he's talking about Christians here. Christians who refuse to do what they know they should do. He speaks of those who have been sanctified, who have been set apart from the world by the blood of Christ. Those who have been made clean, but who then go back to a life of sin. Willful sin. No longer able to claim ignorance as an excuse for what they're doing. Peter makes it clear that anyone who does this is worse off than he would have been had he never known the way of righteousness. In 1 Peter 2:20 20 and 22 we read, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. To turn away from the knowledge Of the truth, and to go on sinning willfully against it, is to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant that freed us from sin in the first place. It is to despise the sacrifice of Christ and to make it meaningless. Furthermore, it is to insult spirit of grace. We were cleansed and freed from sin by the grace of God. And to go back to a life of sin is to insult the spirit of grace. To show disregard for and to try to take advantage of the gracious gift that's been given to us. And the term spirit of grace may also have reference to the Holy Spirit since it is He that assures us of our standing before God and convicts us of our need to stay in fellowship with Him. To disregard what He is trying to tell us about our condition would be a grievous insult against Him and would come very close to and may actually be a form of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And the scribes refused to acknowledge that what Jesus was doing was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And instead accused him of being in league with demons. He said, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to so refuse to acknowledge what he's doing and to so refuse to listen to what he's saying that you completely disregard him. That's exactly what you're doing if you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So where does it end? Quite simply, it ends in the certain terrifying expectation of judgment. It ends in the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It ends in the hands of a living God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And make no mistake, God will repay with a vengeance those who trample underfoot the Son of God, who disregard as unclean the blood of Christ, and who insult the Spirit of grace. No man can defy a living God and escape. Not even those who think they belong to God and assume they're safe just because they belong to a church. As is quoted here from Deuteronomy 32:36, the Lord will judge his people. He'll purge the church of hypocrites and rebels. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep. Now, this doesn't mean you should avoid the church because it includes hypocrites and goats. This warning in Hebrews follows the admonition not to forsake assembling together. It's vitally important that Christians assemble, that they minister to one another through the church. It's that mutual ministry in the church that stimulates the believers to love and good deeds, that encourages them to hold fast to their hope in Christ, and that keeps them from willful sin. But it's not enough to have your name on a church roll somewhere and assume that will get you into heaven. And that, by the way, is the primary reason we don't have an official church membership list. We don't want anyone to think they will avoid judgment by being a member of our church. The Lord will judge His people. He'll judge their hearts and He'll judge their motives. Those who are trusting Christ to save them and are expressing their faith by striving to live lives of loving obedience to his will, have nothing to worry about. Their shortcomings and failures have been forgiven. And judgment for them will simply be a time of reward. But if they are seeking to take advantage of God acting presumptuously and insulting the spirit of grace by willful sin and assuming God will overlook it because they claim to be Christians or because they go to church, they're going to find themselves in the hands of an angry God. And that should be a terrifying expectation. Now, it may not be evident today, but I'm really not a fire and brimstone preacher. I don't, as a rule, try to scare people into the kingdom of God. I'd much rather woo them in with the love of Christ. However, as Barclay so clearly stated, at the heart of Christianity remains a threat and to remove it is to emasculate the faith. We must never forget that to reject Christ's offer of salvation or to go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth is to guarantee for ourselves the fury of a fire which will consume God's adversary. If you are in that position, I pray that the expectation of judgment will terrify you and bring you to your knees. For if you are outside the will of God, it will be a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Thankfully, however... Falling into the hands of God doesn't have to be a terrifying thing. For as even David was able to say in 2 Samuel 24, 14, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord for His mercies are great. If you are trusting Christ to save you, and are demonstrating your love for God by striving to obey Him, empowered by His Spirit, falling into the hands of God will be the most wonderful thing that could ever happen to you. And you are going to end up in His hands. Hands of vengeance or hands of Of mercy. The choice. Is yours to make. Which will it be?